Welcome CTSnet friends, my name's Joel Dunning here with another edition of the CTSnet Beat Podcast. Uh, this is an absolutely packed edition, we've got some really interesting data on what happens if you just watch an ascending aortic aneurysm. We've got AR in TAVA complications, we've got uh, how well does a patient recover after esophagectomy. We have some stellar videos for you, these really are do not miss videos. An incredible beautiful robotic mitral after previous mitral clips. Uh, we've got a really clever way to fix some pseudoaneurysms in the aorta and a paravalvular leak. And for those trainees amongst you, there's some beautiful uh, videos all about hiatus hernia repair. We've got a shout out for Diego and honourable mention, so let's get started. Thank you for joining us again for the CTS Net Beat podcast. My name is Joel Dunning, and uh, the whole reason we do this podcast is to keep you up to date with everything that's going on in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, so today we've got uh, three news items and three fabulous videos uh, and also some information about what's going on uh, in the next few months and some honourable mentions. So we'll get cracking with the news items. So the first one we picked out for you I think is really interesting. Um, this is the fate of the unoperated ascending thoracic aortic aneurysm. Three decades of experience from the Aortic Institute at Yale University. So Jinlin Wu is the first author and the senior author is John. John Aleftiadis, uh, and uh, and certainly myself as a cardiac surgeon, when I was seeing patients with ascending aortic aneurysms, they would always ask, you know, what is going to happen uh, if I don't do anything? And um, you know, I always struggled a little bit to really have the data at my fingertips, but this paper uh, just out uh, is uh, really gives us the answer, which is fantastic. So they have 964 unoperated ascending uh, thoracic aneurysms that they have been following up with their aortic institute. That's a huge number of non-operated uh, aneurysms. So what they do is they um, they look to see if they have an adverse aortic event. Now that's a dissection, rupture or aortic death. And they've followed them up at average of eight years, but actually all the way up to 34 years. Um, and they've subdivided these. These are these are non-Marfan's patients, basically. This is sort of you know your bread and butter patient with an ascending aortic aneurysm, and uh, they've broken up the sizes all the way from three and a half, hardly large at all, all the way up to bigger than six centimeters. Uh, and they've looked at the uh, adverse aortic complication rate. Now, when it's small, uh, when it's four, when it's four and a half and five, uh, the adverse event rate is 0.2 percent, very small, you know, two in a thousand per year but as you start to get above five centimeters that curve started to really rocket up and they produce a beautiful curve that really shows that that rocket up point where does it start it starts at five centimeters not five and a half centimeters so as you get to uh, five to five and a half centimeters that's where things start getting a bit higher risk the risk becomes higher than one percent a year uh, and then at the very highest risk category your chance 
chance of something terrible happening goes to three and a half percent a year. Uh, and that, they actually give an argument that actually maybe we should be a bit more liberal with how we how we recommend surgery. We shouldn't wait till five and a half centimetres. We should go to five centimetres, which I think is really interesting. Now, one of the other things that uh, I, I took away from this pa paper was that uh, aortic aneurysms don't suddenly get bigger really, really fast. Um, they showed that uh, they they expand in quite a slow manner, 0.2 centimetres a year. It was very rare to see any going bigger than 0.2 centimetres a year. So if you're seeing somebody uh, with an aneurysm and they don't really want to have an operation, you can be pretty reassured, reassuring to them to say, look, you know, we'll, we'll check it again in a year. It's not going to expand all that big. And actually, even at that highest risk category above six centimetres, I guess three and a half percent risk a year, you know, isn't the world's biggest if, say, you're 85 years old or 90 or got lots of comorbidities. Um, the other really nice thing they've done in this paper is they've produced a beautiful uh, risk graph, which is 3D because it's stratified by age as well. So they've got the size of the aneurysm, they've got your risk of an adverse event, but in a 3D way, they've got your age because the older you are, the higher your risk is uh, of something happening. And I, I could really see myself showing that to a patient uh, just to give them uh, a really nice graphical illustration of the risks of not doing anything versus doing an intervention. So great job. Uh, one other thing I really liked uh, was that uh, this paper in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery had an audio abstract. So you could just click on it and just have a quick listen to what's contained in it. So if you're driving home today and you just want to click on something and listen, uh, have a little look at that. Great job, guys. Uh, really well done. So the next news item we picked out was something quite interesting, I thought. Uh, the title of it is Artificial Intelligence Predicts the Likelihood of Common TAVA Complications. Uh, this is a uh, paper by Praduma uh, Agasthi and uh, Reza Arsaniani from the World Journal of Cardiology. They're from the Mayo Clinic Phoenix uh, and they're cardiologists and they took a huge database of 1,200 patients undergoing TAVA. Uh, now, in their database, uh, we all know that there's a very high permanent pacemaker rate uh, in TAVA. In their database, uh, the permanent pacemaker rate um, at, uh, at one year is 26%. At 13 days, it's 20%. So one in five to one in four are needing a pacemaker uh, after TAVA. And they were asking the question, um, sort of, how can we predict uh, which patients might get a pacemaker? Um, there are 1,200 patients as I said and it's a five-year database but the reason we picked this out the reason I thought this was really interesting was their use of AI uh, now they I don't understand all the clever stats on it they used a graded boosting model I don't know what that is I, but but the thing they did is they just put everything uh, into their computer so so they didn't just go you know age gender creatinine uh, all that sort of thing they put absolutely everything in and they got some really interesting things out that were predictive so so the number one predictive thing was the distance from the right brachiocephalic artery to the aortic annulus 
as a ratio of that with the patient's height. Now, I wouldn't have even thought of that as a criteria, and yet because they put everything into AI, the AI has been able to generate that as a really important risk factor. So other risk factors were right bundle branch block, um, self-expanding valves, um, the uh, mitral E-wave peak velocity, so mitral regurge, body mass index. So, but, but they picked out some pretty interesting things. A left atrial volume index came out as predictive. When they put it all together, their area under the curve, uh, their rock curve was 0.7 versus 0.5. So it's really quite predictive. Um, so what did I learn from this? Well, what I learned from this is actually if you try and take all your data, if you've got really, really good comprehensive databases that we do these days, if you put it into AI, nowadays it can, it can actually tell you factors that you maybe hadn't thought of. And I think that's a really interesting finding. So perhaps combined with this risk model to, to be useful, to predict people that's going to need a pacemaker, maybe you could put a loop record in straight after your TAVA for the higher risk people or maybe we're even going to look at uh, extended uh, sort of observation uh, for these patients you know if they're high risk in the model um, the actual wider picture of using AI for risk prediction I think is something very interesting and exciting for our specialty so well done uh, to uh, the team there at the Mayo Clinic Phoenix for writing that paper the third new scan paper that we have picked out for you uh, is a, a really nice one by Alicia Bonanno and Onka Kalua uh, from the Emory University uh, in Atlanta. And the title of this is The Recovery of Patient Reported Quality of Life After Esophagectomy. Um, I think as surgeons we are quite focused um, on uh, on getting them through the operation, getting them out of hospital. And if they survive, we're done, job done. But uh, but actually more and more, and certainly in the UK, our, our major research funders are very laser focused on patient related outcome measures. Uh, and this brilliant paper that has just been, um, just been published uh, really concentrates on quality of life. Uh, so they use the, uh, the National Institute of Health sponsored patient reported outcomes measurement information system so, so that's collecting uh, a large number of data on physical function, on pain, dyspnea, uh, and uh, and they used it in their esophagectomy patients, uh, and um, they collated these to find out how did they do uh, in a, a three-year analysis. Um, so. Now, another important thing is that not all these people had malignancy. So 87% did have malignancy, but some are achalasia, strictures, dysplasia. So it's really important when you're doing benign surgery as well to really think about their quality of life. But obviously a lot of them were for, for malignancy. But what was the findings? Well, the findings were that, uh, that up to 50 days, really the patient-related quality of life was, was very significantly declined by 30%. Uh, so that's at 50 days. That's, that's nearly two months out. They're, they're still really struggling and, and actually it took until about a hundred days before the physical function scores were non-significantly different to preoperatively but they were still 10% down. hundred days, that's three months later, our patients are still not back to where they, they are and I think this is really important for us to, to think about as clinicians. Certainly ourselves uh, in, in our hospital, uh, we've really got a surprise of how long it takes for a patient to recover cover. Uh, 
we've just recently started a program of our staff on the ward now have a car and go out and see our patients two, three, four weeks after surgery. And we find they're not just cured, they're not fixed. And we actually put some uh, motion monitors on them as well. Uh, we all expected that as soon as they get out of hospital, they're going to start rushing around doing everything. They walk less the first day they got out of hospital than when they were in hospital. Basically, a load of our patients are sitting at home, freezing, blind, terrified that they shouldn't do anything. All their family are running around them doing absolutely everything for them and actually they're taking a lot longer to recover than we think so I think this is really important I think we should realize how long it takes for our patients to recover this this team have shown us that using the NIHR PROMS outcome measures we can measure this and so I think it, we really should do that uh, a lot more in our practice so well done team there and uh, certainly challenge you uh, do you collect your patient relationship outcome measures maybe you should start maybe you should ask uh, as a research project to ring people up at 30 days and 60 days to see how well they're recovered so I think it is really important we no longer should be thinking can we just get them to survive let's think uh, can we get them back to the way they were or even better so those are our three journal and news scan items. Uh, check them out on the CTSnet website in our JANS uh, or in our weekly email blast telling you what's the latest and greatest uh, of all our new scans. So now I'll hand over to Cameron Lint who's going to tell you what else you can see on our CTSnet website. Take advantage of the features on your profile page to tell the CTSnet community more about yourself. Head to ctsnet.org user to update your background, place of work, and contact information. When you're done, head to the profiles page to stay connected with colleagues and learn more about your fellow CTSnet members. So now I want to tell you about three absolutely knock it out of the park, amazing, beautiful videos. If you've got just 20 minutes, just have a look at some of these. They are really of the very top draw highest quality. And the first one I want to show you um, is robotic assisted mitral valve repair after a failed transcatheter edge to edge repair. Uh, this has been put together by Rishab Humar uh, from the Cedars Sidei Medical Center uh, and uh, the wonderful uh, editor-in-chief of the annals Joe Chiqui and Dominic Emerson uh, were I'm sure the surgeons are heavily involved in this brilliant demonstration and if ever you needed a demonstration of the amazing utility of robotics in mitral repair this is the video to show people you know it's it's just incredible to me that uh, we're not all getting 100% behind robotic surgery and and I think five ten years you know it's going to be the default way of doing it so so this is you know a big shout out for robotic mitral surgery have a look at this now what happened well this is really interesting case actually and and I think they showed a really clever pathway to getting this patient cured this patient was only 38 years old uh, they had familial dilated cardiomyopathy and they presented uh, in a complete state, uh, completely short of breath, atrial fibrillation, severe mitral regurgitation, P2 prolapse, but they had cardiogenic shock. Their ejection fraction was 24%. He was on inotropes. He had a balloon pump. He was in a complete mess, decompensated heart failure. And the extremely experienced team there at Cedars Sinai felt that he was far too risk, high risk to go for surgery. So as a salvage procedure, uh, they went for a transcatheter edge-to-edge -edge repair. And uh, 
three clips were placed uh, to get to only mild mitral regurgitation. And, uh, and they followed this patient up and uh, to their credit, uh, the ejection fraction did completely improve. It went all the way to 64% one month uh, afterwards. So bloom pump out, inotropes off, got out of hospital and a month later, brilliant recovery uh, of the left ventricle. But, uh, but after that on follow up, his mitral regurgitation started getting worse and worse. Uh, and after a discussion, it was decided he should have surgery. He was a very young guy. Um, uh, Joe Chiqui and uh, Dominic Emerson uh, clearly uh, would want to repair this valve in this young person, but they had this big problem. They had three massive, horrible clips uh, on the mitral, but this video shows just the most wonderful view uh, of the mitral. Uh, it shows how useful the, the uh, robotic instruments were in being able to tease open each mitral clip, being able to push off uh, the leaflet without damaging it, uh, and, and they prized out these mitra clips uh, with brilliant uh, accuracy. They then did a beautiful triangular repair, changing over to uh, the intuitive scissors, uh, and then they uh, did their triangular repair. They put their aneuplasty ring in and they oversewed uh, the uh, left atrial appendage. Uh, and they also, not shown in the video, uh, did a cryo um, did a cryo um, ablation as well. So really good job. Um, you really should watch this video. It really is excellent. And, um, and I think they did a lovely job there. Really nice. So that was a really uh, good video. Have a look, check it out on CTSnet. You can look at it on YouTube, uh, on in any of our platforms are direct from clicking the link in the show notes below. The second uh, video I'd like to show you is by Adam Carroll and, uh, and T. Reese, uh, and is a really nice video from the University of Colorado. And they had a big problem. This is quite a patient. Listen to this. So this is a 60-year-old patient uh, who, when he was born, had coarctation of the aorta. Um, and... Um, and he had a bicuspid valve. At the age of 10, uh, he had a left thoracotomy and repair of his coarctation. Um, so that went pretty well. But then 15 years later, at the age of 25, he got bicuspid valve endocarditis and he needed a mechanical aortic valve and a mechanical mitral. Um, so fast forward uh, another 20 years, he's now 48 years old uh, and he develops a large aortic root uh, pseudoaneurysm. Uh, they, they show us some beautiful 3D reconstructions. They've got some lovely views, but the team, and you can see on the video, um, that you cannot tell is the pseudoaneurysm whole. Is it above the mechanical aortic valve or is it below the mechanical aortic valve? And this this was giving them a real headache. Um, and then the second problem this patient had was that they had a mitral paravalvular leak as well. So there was a hole next to the aortic valve, there was a hole next to the mitral valve. Now what I really like about this video, this is the tip top best thing about this video, is the algorithm they produced to approach this patient. It is a beautiful graph of how to plan an operation. They basically said, our operative approach is going to massively change depending on whether the pseudoaneurysm hole is above or below uh, the aortic um, uh, mitral, the aortic replacement. And so they said, okay, well, if it's above, we're going to do a transfemoral approach to plug it, and then uh, we're going to just use a transfemoral approach to fix the aortic aneurysm. That's it. 
Now, if there's a hole above and below, are there two entrances? Okay, well, we're going to do transfemoral and transapical, but then we'll fix both pathologies. We'll fix that one in the mitral as well. Now, if the hole is below the annual and annulus, then we're going to go pure transapical. Now, it was all mapped out, and I'm sure they had their team completely prepped, and what a great example of how to do preoperative planning. So in they went. They showed us this uh, six-centimeter aneurysm. They did an LV-gram, nothing. They then, so, sorry, they did an aortogram. There was nothing, uh, and then they did a transapical, uh, puncture and they did an LV gram and there was the big um, the big uh, hole uh, they put a wire into the pseudoaneurysm and they said a big swirling contrast uh, from below the aortic leaflet uh, and then they showed a really nice demonstration of putting uh, an Amplatz device in they put a 10 millimeter AVP2 plug uh, into the pseudoaneurysm and then did another LV gram showing complete uh, fixation of this they then had a lovely 3D TOE image uh, of a big hole uh, next to the mitral uh, mechanical valve and uh, and they put another plug in there and a four millimeter plug and completely fixed all fixed transapically uh, no bypass use beating heart great job well done team absolutely beautiful demonstration of what you can do with pre-op planning so the third video we've got for you is robotic assisted parasophageal hernia repair uh, with preoperative anatomy and technical considerations. This is an absolute beaut uh, for trainees out there in the audience. Uh, Daniel Clunan has done this from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston uh, with uh, Cameron Stock, Elliot uh, Cervais and Amara Watkins. Great job. Uh, so they had a parasophageal hernia uh, and the thing that's really nice on this video is just how they did a beautiful job of, of showing you stepwise of how they approach it with their robotic uh, approach. They do a lovely, beautiful diagram of where they put their camera, just to the left of the umbilicus, where they put their three robotic arms. They've got two assistant ports, one 10 mil, one 5 mil. Uh, they use the vessel sealer uh, to take the short gastrics and expose the left crus. Uh, they then do some really nice overlay of the anatomy just to show you uh, where the lesser sac is, where the crus is, where the spleen and splenic artery is. They then show you the right crus, how to get into the clear area, how to where the liver is, and then up through the right crus into the into the chest. Um, they then pull down the esophagus really nicely, get three centimeters of it out into the chest. They then do some really nice sutures. They're using some V-lock, plegeted V-lock, uh, three sutures below the esophagus, uh, some hints and tips about how tight to do it. And then the really nice thing is they didn't just give us a single video because they've shown us the two ways to do a fundoplication. They've shown us the door method and then they've taken a second patient and shown us their technique with the Nissan's technique. So absolutely stellar. Well done. Great job team. I do encourage you to look at that if you are interested in hernia repair robotically. So those are our Jans news items, those are our videos and now uh, I just want to tell you about a few really good upcoming events. Um, there's a great event uh, happening at uh, held by EACTS. It's the Fundamentals in Valvular Heart Disease. It's April the 25th to the April the 27th. It's held at EACTS House in Windsor, but it's also online as well as in person. So this is a really great um, <clears throat> three-day course all about aortic valve anatomy, mitral valve anatomy. Um, there's actually some hands-on sessions if you can get there, but don't worry, you can watch it all online if you if you 
sign up. Uh, there's a really good international group. There's Greedal, there's uh, Dr. Reza from Zurich, there's uh, all sorts of people from, from all over Europe uh, as the uh, faculty, uh, which is really great. So I encourage you to check it out. Go to the EAC's website and have a look for uh, this course, Fundamentals in Valvular Heart, Heart Disease. And if you can't get there, uh, it's all online as well. Um, Obviously, uh, you are all, I'm sure, looking forward to the 103rd annual meeting for the AATS, uh, May the 6th to May the 9th uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, so check out the AATS website and get, uh, get registered there. And then the third thing I just want to let you know about is a really good course called the uh, Annual London Core Review in Kydothoracic Surgery course. This is the 12th version. You can just go to londoncorereview.com uh, and uh, just have a look at, uh, at what they offer. They offer 80 lectures, they've got quizzes, they've got course books, they've got a stellar faculty, Jabreen El Khoury, Tyrone David, David Taggart, Karen Redmond, uh, amongst loads of others. It's four days, it's cardiac, it's thoracic, it's congenital, it's esophageal. So it's really designed for very senior trainees or, or new consultants or people doing exams anywhere in the world really. Uh, the really great thing is if you can't go in person it's all online as well uh, and uh, at £585 I think it does represent pretty good value really if you're going to be doing some exams in the near future. So check it out uh, londoncorereview.com May, May the 10th to May the 13th. So finally, we're getting to the near near the end of our podcast, and we always have two little items. Uh, this item's called "Where's Diego?" Diego Gonzalez Rivas, uh, the world's run sort of best thoracic surgery, traveling the world to help people all over the world. He's got a foundation as well, so check out his foundation. But uh, he was in Shanghai last week, and this week he's nipped over to Lisbon to lead a, a Uniportal Vats and Uniportal Robotic course. Two days in Lisbon. Uh, it was really nice. They provided it completely free online so I dipped in and watched some beautiful operations there's some cardiac surgery in there some robotic cardiac as well he actually designed the um, uniportal robotic thoracic technique with his colleague cardiac surgeon uh, so so a little known thing about Diego he does like to dip into cardiac surgery as well uh, and then that's not all he did this week uh, he nipped across to Madrid to do a uniportal robotic middle lobe sleeve lobectomy uh, where actually they had to cut into the um, the the B6 and the B7 to 10 uh, and do a sort of three-way anastomosis robotically. Very impressive. Well done, Diego. And check out next week. Uh, our podcast will tell you where he is in the world. And finally, as an honourable mention, I want to mention to you that our honourable mention this week goes to the uh, Epitor database led by Marcel Dehan uh, and the French Society of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Surgery. It's 20 years old today. Uh, so congratulations to them. Uh, this is a fantastic database. Uh, over 100 centres across France have contributed to it. It's got uh, huge numbers of patients. And when I was visiting um, Jean-Marc Bast in Rouen, uh, I was really blown away by the quality of the uh, data entry that they put in. It's really detailed. It's really good for robotics, but it's really good for VATS and OPEN as well. They provided some fantastic data comparing those three techniques. So congratulations. 
Revelations, it was used by Pierre-Emmanuel Falcoz to create the Tharaka score. So it's got quite a history. Uh, so that's our honourable mention this week uh, to the French Society. Marcel, well done. And, uh, and, and a really good example of the power of databases over the, uh, over the decades. So that's all for this week. Thank you very much for lasting to the end of this podcast. My name's uh, Joel Dunning. And if you have anything really interesting you want us to feature, have you just published a paper? Would you like us to profile your video? Uh, if you have, drop us a line uh, at CTSnet and we'll put you on our weekly podcast. So from me, thank you very much. Thank you.